Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we investigate what appears to be growing internal opposition to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, get the latest on the ongoing battle for Kherson, and hear from our reporter on the ground in Kyiv, where life continues under constant threat of missile strikes. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, 26th of October, day 245. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, and Joe Barnes, our reporter in Ukraine. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, Claire, and hi, everybody. So the big thing from the last, uh, last 24 hours is the focus on the city of Hezon, down in the, to the south, south of the country. Um, Alexei Arestovich, who's the um, U- uh, President Zelensky's um, key advisor, he, he has said that there's, um, he's building on the reports from recent days, he said there's no sign that Russian forces are looking to abandon the city and quite, quite the reverse. He says, uh, quote, with Hezon, everything is clear. The Russians are replenishing, strengthening their grouping there. It means that nobody's preparing to withdraw. On the contrary, the heaviest of battles is going to take place for Herzon. So it looks as if the, the, these ideas that, um, that what would make military um, sense to, to remove those forces, they, they're no longer providing any real, any real advantage there for Russia. It makes sense to move them back across the Dnipro River to the south. Back to the um, to the, the sort of southern and eastern bank of the Dnipro, looks like Russia is not going to do that. Looks like they are going to try and hang on to the city, uh, which which could be if Ukraine wants to try and take it in its entirety by fighting street to street, could be uh, a very a very uh, expensive battle there. I will in a moment just talk about just very briefly why cities are important. What what is what is a city? Uh, why should they be why are they held to have such military significance but just before i do that um other updates there seem to be signs of of potential unrest in the kremlin i mean a very small p potential um but we see some of the some of the figures close to putin um such as the chechen leader ramzan kadyrov who has has his his fighters supposedly in ukraine um, he has complained that um, that the, the performance has been woeful. Um, he says that, that uh, although he's saying Ukrainian strikes on Russian territory have been weak, he's noting that they are uh, fighting on on uh, Russian soil, which is a you know, d- disputed. But he he's citing that 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 the war has uh, has moved into Russia. He's also calling it a war. He's not saying it's a special military operation, um, and uh, and he's basically complaining about the the way that that Russia has been conducting this campaign so far. And that goes uh, hand in hand with Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the, the Wagner Group, who's also uh, very sharply criticised the Russian MOD, um, purportedly in a, in a private conversation to Putin, but I think it's been widely widely leaked. He is uh, uh, apparently complaining that whilst the Russian MOD is relying on, on groups like the Wagner Wagner forces, they are not in any way funding them or supplying them, which again, I think is a bit of a moot point because we're pretty certain that, that Wagner are being supplied by, by Russia. But the, the interesting point there is that these two characters who are quite significant military figures in their own right, um, for good or ill, mainly ill, uh, but they, are, they are speaking in this manner. It just shows the internal 
um, what we suspect to be fairly accurate reports, the internal um, opposition, or, or, or if not opposition, that's far too strong, but, but criticism of the way that, um, that Putin and the Kremlin are, are running this war. I'll take a little pause there, but, um, but yeah, it is worth coming back if there's time to discuss, uh, discuss urban fighting because it, it's very important. Thank you for that, Dom. I'd like to come to you next, Francis. You've been reading recently about the state of opposition in Russia. Uh, I understand you have an update on this for us. Thanks, Claire, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, regular listeners will know that I've been keeping an eye on the state of resistance in Russia. And to Dom's point, in the past 24 hours, we've seen perhaps our clearest indication yet that things are heating up in that regard, not just in the Kremlin, but um, outside of the Kremlin as well. We understand that in the past 24 hours, Russian anti-war protesters have blown up a railway line on the main link between Russia and Belarus. This is according to the UK Ministry of Defence. This comes from a reliable source. There have been at least six incidents of sabotage against Russian military infrastructure that's been claimed since June. But this would be the the most significant by this group known as Stop the Wagons. Um, and essentially, it's it's an attempt to to delay and and stop um, rail transport from de- deploying forces to Ukraine. And it makes doing so extremely challenging and and that's uh, indeed the the uh, UK military defense's approach to to how significant this is bear in mind that the network of course extends over 33 thousand kilometers so it, this is a very very extensive rail work but nonetheless you, this kind of damage, I think, rather than should being seen in its, in its military significance, because I imagine they'll be able to repair this fairly quickly, it should be seen rather as indicative of a ramping up of, of internal pressure, I think. And whilst this group have been orchestrating several acts uh, in recent months, I think the scale of this one and the timing of this one is no doubt significant. So I think well worth just touching on that as so I don't want to overreg the significance of it too much but I think nonetheless it's something that's worth drawing attention to in the broader context of of protesting in Russia. Thanks for that Francis. Staying on Russia there's another update on Russian activities in the nuclear space. What can you tell us about what's happened? Yes so Russia's nuclear energy operator has said that Russian forces are performing secret work at Europe's largest nuclear power plant, that of course being Zaporizhia. Now this comes in the background of increasing fears that the Kremlin might intend to make Zaporizhia the site of some alleged false flag operation involving a nuclear device. Indeed, we've spoken at length already in recent days about the Russian Ministry of uh, Defence uh, Minister Sergei Shoigu making calls on India and, and, and Chinese counterparts to convey Moscow's warning that it's Ukraine's intention to deploy some kind of dirty bomb, that being a, a weapon that uses radioactive material. But the fear is, as we've talked about, is that this is actually Russia p- are planning this and are, are hoping to be able to blame it on the Ukraine. Ukrainians, um, even though it would have actually been carried out by them. And as I say, that the update in this space is the fact that they believe there's some kind of secretive work going on at Zaporizhia, perhaps to to acquire some of this radio, radioactive, active, um, radioactive material. So, uh, again, I, uh, we don't know much more details than that. But nonetheless, it's, a, it's an interesting one, I think, and, and worth worth drawing attention to. Thanks again, Francis. I understand there's been an update on the US letter that you mentioned yesterday. What's the latest on that? Yes, well, I spoke at length yesterday about this letter that was delivered to the White House by a certain number of progressive Democrats calling on President Joe Biden to negotiate directly with Russia for a, quote, rapid, close quote, peace in Ukraine. They have now backed down and withdrawn that letter following the widespread backlash, not only from Ukraine, but from the White House and other furious Democrats who've 
really called their position uh, an olive branch uh, to Vladimir Putin himself. So um, it's it's all fallen apart very, very quickly and perhaps in a way that was to be expected, not necessarily given the reality of the letter, which we understand was written in July, but rather for the, for the timing of it and the optics of it, to Dom's point yesterday, which is that the optics of this were more significant than the context in that it, it comes at a time when there's increased concern amongst uh, the West and certainly in Kiev that there may be as we approach winter a weakening of Western resolve and this would of course play into Moscow's propaganda and, and being able to to say you know to the people back in Russia that, that this is something that is actually really happening and is now tangible so as I say it's I think it's expected that it would be withdrawn and in fact there is more to this story as I say it was drafted many months ago so it's not actually indicative of any contemporary feeling and they're now actually saying that it was released by staff without warning so perhaps even released by accident we don't know whether that's true or not but nonetheless um, I think uh, it's it's still something that is worth talking about because it is suggestive of broader trends or at least that's the fear. Thanks, Francis. Now, British listeners will be only too aware that we have a new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He's only been in office for a day. But Francis, what can you tell us about his um, attitudes towards Ukraine? Have there been any developments on that front so far? Well, yes. So I spoke yesterday about some of the, I suppose, concerns that he may not be as robust on Ukraine as his direct predecessors, Boris Johnson and uh, Liz Truss. Indeed, his remarks that I spoke about yesterday were uh, outside of number 10 when he gave his speech were not as as strong as Liz Truss's had been. He spoke about the the, the, the war coming to a to a conclusion rather than saying anything stronger than that. But actually, there have been immediate signs since we spoke yesterday of Rishi Sunak being much more robust on Ukraine. Indeed, he's vowed to support the country and has said that Britain's support will be as strong as ever. And he even hinted about an in-person trip after speaking to President Zelensky yesterday. He spoke in the evening to underline Britain's steadfast support for the country. That was according to a Downing Street spokeswoman. And uh, as I say, direct quotes we can pull from that statement are that his government would, quote, continue to stand in solidarity with the war-torn country and also noting the importance of the International Atomic Energy Agency's work in Ukraine to ensure nuclear safety and provide transparency around disinformation. So um, quite revealing, I think, that on his first day in office that he saw it as vitally important to speak to Vladimir Zelensky first. And I think that is suggestive, as I say, of the more hawkish side of Rishi Sunak, which we saw in his letter to the Kyiv Post to mark uh, Ukraine Independence Day, which I spoke about at length yesterday. So promising signs from a British perspective that some of the fears uh, around uh, Rishi Sunak and, and Ukraine may not be quite as, uh, as, as founded as, as some feared. And the only other thing I'll, I'll add before, um, before you bring uh, Joe in, uh, it's interesting that, that Shoigu continued his, his sort of diplomatic round of phone calls about this whole dirty bomb thing. He's um, apparently called his opposite numbers in China and India. And, and Rajnath Singh, who's the, the Indian defence minister, actually gave him, we are told, this is from, I'm looking at the Hindustan Times and other uh, Indian media, um, actually gave, gave a bit of a, a bit of a stiff-armed response. Um, and a, a spokesman for, uh, for Defence Minister Singh said, he pointed out, this is a quote, he pointed out that the nuclear option should not be resorted to by any side as the prospect of the usage of nuclear or radiological weapons goes against the basic tenets of humanity, end of quote. So interesting there, I mean, couched in nice soft language but you know by any side it's pretty obvious that well to to most intelligent consumers of 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 this kind of information that it's only russia who's risking or talking about the use of a nuclear weapon or radiological weapon but um interesting use of language there that they they sort of couch it in the by any side but but mentioning nuclear or radiological weapons i mean a real clunky wonkish term but I'm directly talking to dirty bombs. That's what a radiological weapon is. So here, here we have the defence minister of India saying directly to Sergei Shoigu, 
you know, don't don't be don't be using a dirty bomb, minor Freund. Um, okay, probably mixing my continents up there. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting that he goes goes to China. We don't know what happened there because China and India for a bit of support and and is uh, gets a, a fairly stiff armed uh, response. Thanks for that, Dom. Now I'd like to go over to the Telegraph's reporter on the ground in Ukraine, Joe Barnes. Joe, could you tell us about what you, what you've been doing and who you've spoken to so far? Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, so here in Kiev, and um, have been here for just shy of a week now. And what I've been doing here, and I, I, I thought it was important to kind of tell the story of of Kiev when I when I arrived in Ukraine because it's um it's been slightly neglected because it's hundreds and hundreds of miles away from any sort of front line, but there are dozens and dozens of stories here. So I, I think I'd start, and I'd, I, I say this now as air raid sirens kind of ring around the city, as they quite regularly do every day. Um, one of the first things I kind of noticed, and so I visited Kiev uh, first back in 2018, and kind of became really really fond of the city and its people, and it's 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 regardless of of war and what's going on, is a it's a great cultural hub. It's it has great artists, great musicians, uh, great nightlife spots, great outdoor green spaces. It's it really is a vibrant city for those that haven't that haven't visited or been lucky enough to visit. Um and to to, to start with, I, I I was asked to do the Telegraph Dispatches newsletter, which gets emailed out to our subscribers uh once a week, I believe. Um and I, I, I wrote it about the sounds of Keeves resistance. Um and it started off, let's say, I was taking a stroll towards Shevchenko Park, which was the scene of a horrific Russian missile attack just about probably three weeks ago now. And you'll all be aware of, kind of be familiar with the pictures of a huge crater that had been blown up um, and made just next to a children's playground in that park. And so I took a stroll there one evening just to kind of take in the local atmosphere. And I stumbled across a, a kind of a four-piece band. It had a guitarist, a drummer, bassist, a piano player, obviously the singer um, in it. And they were, they were, they were playing U2 uh, just to kind of add some more colour to it. But I, what I, what... What I kind of gathered from this, and as I further explored the city of, of an evening and, and moved round, was that the people of Kiev won't be kind of cowered in to being affected by Vladimir Putin's slight change of tactics, where he's now decided to start targeting civilians in the Ukrainian capital after kind of so much... So, basically, it, would, it had been silent here for, for, for many months. They, a lot of the people you speak to would would say that war is something that they read about on on telegram news channels or the newspaper or watch on television it's it's not something that impacts their everyday living and i i i found it really really fascinating uh, to speak to people about how they live with this adversity and so during one lengthy air raid siren last week um it ended with multiple strikes on civilian targets across the country uh, didn't directly land in Kiev, but it, uh, some targets were hit in the region itself around the capital. And um, I've, I've met a, a former journalist here, Irina, um, and we've been speaking, and she messaged me to basically reach out and go, Joe, are you, are you okay during this air raid siren? Have you taken cover? Have you, have you done this? And I said, yeah, yeah, we're, look, we're all safe. What, what about you? And, and she was just like, oh, I, 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 I no longer really am affected by the air raid sirens. I don't automatically seek shelter. And then once the all clear was given, she messaged back to say, congratulations, we're alive. And then she apologised for, for sounding slightly odd and said, look, we in Kiev are all here trying to find positives in our life. Um, and that's just, that's just something I've really found here. The atmosphere has been... It's not one of where a country's at war. It's a, it's a, it's a story about kind of young people that are really trying to get on with life, and the sounds of the city are very much that of celebration rather than of kind of the adversity of 
the fact that these Iranian-made drones have been fired into the city, crude missiles are being fired in, fired into the city, and the fact that there's a, a ground and artillery war um, and the front lines of that are, say, just a few hundred miles away. Um, and then elsewhere, I've, I've travelled out to the, the town of Irpin, which was uh, saw some of the most devastating kind of damage and destruction caused by the Russians uh, in the early days of the war. And we, we visited a slight, a close-knit community, um, a, a community of four tower blocks in Irpin called the Tenth Line. And there we met a few families who are basically, they've moved back in, but they're now grappling with the fact that they have no windows, their homes are still yet to be repaired after kind of brutal Russian aerial strikes on their apartment blocks. So the out the outside of their buildings are completely like scarred and charred. Um, there's that you can you can see the the craters left from the shelling uh, that took place there on on the street outside. the The children's play park there was was covered and littered with holes where shrapnel had ripped through the slide and the swing was uh, left dangling off. It was it was it was really quite sad to see because it was clearly once a very very happy a nice kind of commuter town to live in away from the hustle and bustle of Kiev and somewhere nice to raise your children with more green spaces, wooded areas to, to explore and kind of have fun in. But we met one young family, uh, the mother, Yana, she's 28, and she had a young daughter, Ira, who was 12. And they are living, they, they actually lost their house, in which was in one of the apartment, which was in one of the four uh, tower blocks um, which was condemned after the Russian strike, but they were lucky enough that they were rehomed across in the same estate, across in another one of these cellbooks. But we 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 went up and they invited us in, and they had no windows. All they had to keep the elements out were these thin plastic tarpauling sheets, and it was getting cold. And like a lot of properties uh, that have been damaged in that area, there was no gas, so. For heating, they relied on two electric heaters in the corner of the main room, which was actually also the kind of the main bedroom because it was a very small and modest apartment. And but when we arrived in Irpin at that point, the community had been out without power for several hours, and it, I think in total was without power for about seven hours that day when we were when we were there. And that is because Vladimir Putin and the Russian military have started to target. Uh, civilian infrastructure, um, electricity, power stations and switch points and stuff like that in, in and around these uh, these towns in Ukraine. And, and basically this family had no way of cooking, no way of heating their homes, no way of entertaining themselves. And naturally, as winter creeps in, it was starting to get dark early. So they were basically huddled around in their family homes only with battery-powered torches and the remaining power on their mobile phones to illuminate their rooms. So it's, it's quite a sad existence. And we did say it's on the website, um, the dispatch that we did from Irpin. And so Yana, it was quite a sad story, really, because she basically had no hope of um, having her windows repaired and replaced before the winter really sets in. And Ukrainian winters are, as, as most people know, quite brutal. So they'll be expecting temperatures soon to kind of plunge, plunge below, below zero. And you, you just kind of have to feel that while the war is actually hundreds and hundreds of miles from them, people are still battling for basically to survive. And that's that's one one kind of takeaway that that maybe and you'll always say when you ask Ukrainians what they want, they're always asked for weapons. But actually, is there something more humanitarian uh, that the Western countries, especially Britain, because in, in April, Boris Johnson uh, pledged to... Um, he pledged to basically fund and help the rebuild of the Kiev region after the horrible occupations of Irpin, of Butcher, and of Borodyanka in this region. Um, but we're yet to see kind of the real effects of those Western promises, I think. So that's that's kind of one takeaway. Um, and then I, 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 so I've done a few more pieces that are yet to be published. So I've, I've been to meet uh, two football hooligans turned soldiers, and this will be in tomorrow's newspaper, and they're members of what are quite a unique group called the Hoods Hoods Clan. They're Ukraine's only uh, anti-fascist and anti-racist um, football 
hooligans group and many of their members have now gone to volunteer on the front line and i met two of them uh and so the story is essentially about how ukrainian society has come together despite being deeply divided before between sort of skinhead groups anarchist groups communist groups and they found one con- common enemy and and they're actually now fighting for a, a kind of a new and united ukraine and then another uh, another story that i've been quite interested in while out here is um is and it was going on on the sounds of kiev is we visited a uh, a nightclub an underground warehouse rave essentially that was attended by hundreds and hundreds of young people um because before before the war kiev was considered one of europe's kind of premier kind of night spots in in terms of raves and nightclubbing uh, but obviously that all goes away with with war because there was harsh curfews put in place and alcohol wasn't allowed to be served and people on the front line would fled the country but actually now night nightlife is starting to spring back into action in in Kiev and we went to one event which was quite interesting it was set up by an organization called Kiev Angels who is who's made up of kind of DJs artists uh, music producers club promoters and various other people who have been ferrying humanitarian and military supplies to the front line uh, or the front lines of this war uh, since February. And and they, they had set up a club night um, to raise money for a car that was going to be handed to a local snipers unit um, based in Kiev so they could go to the front line and be more effective in battling. Uh, and we met one local DJ there who was quite interesting. His name was Sasha Schultz. And he had basically volunteered uh, to fight at the beginning of the war, uh, but was told that he couldn't uh, because he has uh, kind of a loss of vision in his left eye. Uh, so instead, he's taken it upon himself to do all he can to uh, to basically support his country uh, at its time of need. And he's so he's um, raising money. He's he's hosted these uh, club nights, these raves in Lviv, in Kiev. He's hoping to take them to Berlin, to Paris, to London, to Barcelona, to these European clubbing hotspots to to raise more money. So I think that's something to look out for. And I'll stop there because I'm conscious I've been rambling on for quite some time. Fascinating to hear from you, Joe. I just wanted to go back to what you were saying about your journalist connection who said she wasn't running for cover every time she heard an air raid siren. Is that a commonly held attitude from the people that you've spoken to or... Is that something that is kind of across age brackets, that attitude? Is it just something that the young people are are doing? I'd, I'd like to hear more about whether that's kind of a universally held belief or if that's just the, the few. Um, no, I would say it's, 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 it's very universal. Um, at first, the, the air raid sirens are disconcerting. It's, it's, it's something that, fortunately for us in Britain, unless you're of of a of a of an age where kind of world war two was was still going on you've probably never heard an air raid siren before so when the first siren went off on my first morning i instantly went oh what do i do um i went down to kind of the lobby of the hotel and saw just people getting on with their lives um but i think yesterday uh so when when is it tuesday of uh, early morning i was out for a a walk. I went for a morning coffee, and I was just having a stroll. So I'd go and buy some supplies, um, basically in preparation of leaving Kiev tomorrow. And the air raid siren went out. I was a twenty-minute walk from the hotel, so I kind of started ambling my way back. But there was very, very, very few people were even phased by the fact that this air raid siren was going off. Um, yes, shops have to close, restaurants have to close. There's lots of people out there. I walked past a what's kind of a we'll call it a high end kind of John Lewis or style department store uh, near the Independent Square, Maidan Square, and they were kicking the customers out. But instead of the customers leaving, they were just waiting outside to be let back in. So I, I think we're at a stage in, in Kiev where people have kind of grown to live with the threat. And one thing that was said to me by someone was, "Look, we would be very, very, very unlucky." if we were hit here because Kiev is a massive it's a sprawling city um and i just think people are quite relaxed here um so yesterday uh when this siren went off i was making my way back to the hotel uh with our photographer heathcliff o'malley who's out here with me and 
we decided that we would go down into a kind of a metro station to see uh, how many people were sheltering. And to be honest, there were sl- there were a few groups of young people had gone down there to shelter. Uh, one young girl, probably in her early 20s, uh, was crying um, at the sounds. So obviously, it is kind of quite distressing for some people. Uh, another another guy that I, I, I noticed, who he was there with his young baby, who was probably less than three months old. Uh, so you would kind of think that's the wise thing to do uh, when an air raid siren goes off. You go and shelter with your with your young infant child. Um, but to be fair, the the city keeps moving. It's it's strange. Cars don't stop. Uh, they keep travelling. Uh, people don't stop moving outside. Um, people are people are stopped for cigarettes and, and just standing in the open. It's 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 quite a strange reality. Um, but I think just the people of this city have kind of grown to live with the sirens and and live with their kind of the threat of war on their city. And so I, I will say something about the sirens. The the sirens do go off, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that something is being aimed at Kiev itself. It means something has probably entered or gone near, whether it be a rocket, a drone, a Russian aircraft, has gone near to the airspace of the region. So often at times when I I would guess that rockets are fired uh, from kind of the, the Black Sea and they travel across the whole of the country before hitting their targets, that would trigger pretty much all of the country into an air raid alert. So I, I, I guess people have just learned to live with it. And I, at first it was strange. and But then people would say, oh, Joe, you will soon learn and your body will soon adjust and you will sleep through these sirens. So um, one night last week, I was obviously in, in bed. It was, uh, I think the alarm went off at 1.45 and I was only awoken at about 2.45 an hour later when the all clear message was given through the loudspeaker of our hotel. So what people are saying is true. You, you, you kind of, your body learns to adapt and live with this kind of, this, this strange wailing sound of, of air raid sirens. On kind of the, the topic of learning to live in strange circumstances, I wanted to touch on the blackouts how are people adapting to living in the blackouts? Does it affect how they eat, um, when they're making plans, things like that? What can you tell us about how people are learning to live with the threat of blackouts? Yep, so you're right. People are having to um, to uh, adapt. So um, the Kiev region, uh, so actually downtown Kiev, um, there had been a few power cuts, but it's actually very unlikely that the power cuts off uh, in the main city. But as I, as I mentioned earlier, the people of Irpin, they have been without power for a considerable number of days. And, and basically the, the Kiev region has implemented these energy saving measures. So streetlights get turned off at night. Um, buildings are recommended that um, they turn their, like, their big lights off. And even as uh, much, and I'm sure this would probably upset many Western journalists here, uh, the our hotel sauna has been shut down to save power, which is quite wise, I guess. Um, so in the city, it doesn't really matter. I've seen I've seen pictures of people sit, sitting in bars and they're drinking and eating by candlelight. But as you get out into the into the the urbans, the butchers, the, the kind of the suburbs around Kiev itself, that it becomes more of a problem. So a lot of these people these communities have energy saving measures and often it's between it's for four hours a day or in kind of daylight hours so between 2 p.m and 6 p.m their power is liable to be turned off as the government tries to regulate kind of power supplies and make sure uh, that everyone has enough supplies at critical times but as, as i mentioned that means a lot of these damaged houses are without gas supplies so people's electric heaters go off so they're forced to kind of cuddle up under duvets, wear coats inside, uh, yeah, have a cuddle with their with their family pets to keep warm. Um, and then again, the, the electricity often goes off in the middle of the night when most people are sleeping. So what people have started doing and what I've noticed from my discussions with people is they've started to having to plan their meals because they know their cookers are likely not to turn on uh, at dinner time. So they will 
they will have a selection of kind of pre-cooked meals that they know they can eat cold and they're going to be kind of edible because um, they know they might not get a hot meal at night now because uh, the the power just it, the, the government promises the power will only be off between two and six but the reality is it, it's it's not always guaranteed for it to return and it's uh it's a sad fact of life that uh, kind of people in this country are are going to have to put up with through its through its bitter winter because of what Vladimir Putin and the Russian army have done by targeting energy infrastructure over uh, which they would probably claim is a, a military target but we know it's actually the civilians that are paying for this uh, these sorts of attacks thanks again joe what can you tell us about where you're going next um i will keep it because we haven't traveled yet and uh, i'll keep it fairly vague but we're traveling down south uh, we'll be kind of in between mikolaev and dnipro uh, to start with um and so we're just going to move closer to the front line and we're going to look at how the military is preparing for a winter war and how that they have to change their tactics what they uh, what they buy from what they buy from suppliers and we're just going to see what it's like in towns and villages where shelling is more frequent because uh, as as i mentioned the air raid sirens do go off in kiev but actually the threat of these iranian drones uh, and other missiles has been fairly low while we're here. So we're going we're going to look at people that are slightly more threatened or a lot more threatened by the by Russian attacks on civilian targets. Thanks, Joe. Dom, I believe you have a question for Joe. Yeah, hi Joe. Great to hear from you. Great to hear you and Heathcliff are are well and enjoying the um, the nightclub. Sorry to hear about the sauna. Uh, just a, a, a quickie, if I may. So you say that that. Um, that the Kiev residents are, are are getting normalized to air raid sirens and all the rest of it. Um, is there any sign of a backlash against the government in, in that case? If if their new life is one of intermittent uh, annoyances from um, from air raid sirens, uh, any sign that, that that greater annoyance is the restrictions that are still in place from the government, uh, and any sort any sign of a uh, grumbling from society against the. Uh, against Zelensky or against the either the course of the war or the, the restrictions that are still in place? Uh, no, 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 no. It's really, really not something that I've picked up. And hi, Dom. Um, so I've actually met a lot of people who didn't think Zelensky was a particularly good leader before the war started, but now they've grown to kind of respect him and believe that he's doing a really solid job, which I think most people in the West would agree with. Uh, but it's actually for Ukrainians, it's interesting to kind of listen to their their thoughts on how their wartime leader has kind of improved and kind of grown in stature the longer this conflict has gone on uh, but no because i think but in terms of backlash against the government i think the one out resounding kind of message that you hear from ukrainians is they're very acutely aware that this is russia attacking them and their freedoms it's not the government attacking their freedoms as as i know Lots of people complained about coronavirus restrictions in the UK, and they saw that as a direct kind of government attack on their freedoms. The people of Ukraine and the people of Kyiv understand this and think of this conflict as it's Russia trying to steal from them rather than their government trying to steal from them. If I could just jump in there. Hi, Joe. Good to speak to you. Uh, Just wondering whether when you're speaking to people, whether any of them give you any sense of how long they think the war is going to last, whether that be people saying that they think that this will be over next year or before the end of the year. I'm just interested in in what the general mood is on on this timescale question. It's a very, 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 very good question. And and people give you people give you different answers. I've I've um, spoken to people who are probably more confident that the war will come to an end soon, uh, but they, they they are people um, who are living in in central Kiev. They frequent bars in the evenings. They have social time. They earn a probably a, a higher wage than people out in out in the in the suburbs. So if you if you speak to uh, people in the suburbs uh, who are actually suffering. So, for instance, Yana or Yana, who has no windows and is basically contending with only partial 
electrical kind of coverage and when she only has two kind of small electric heaters she was less confident she 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 didn't know when it was going to end and uh, we, I met another lady in Irpin who had been moved to a kind of a Polish funded makeshift camp which was built up of kind of houses with containers and each kind of it, each room had four bunk beds where in this case four women would share uh, a, a, a basically a dormitory and, and she had no idea when she was going to be able to move into a stable a stable situation and she goes she told me that there's no hope for us uh, moving into a more permanent house until the war is over um, because that no one is going to build houses while there's a war going on and I and I, I said uh, um, so when when do you think that's going to happen when when will houses start to be built and she just went I can only hope soon but honestly I don't know so it's 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 a different response with people living in different situations. Thank you all for your contributions this afternoon. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, so I'd like to come to everybody's final thoughts. Um, Dom, if I can go to you first, what would you like to leave our listeners with today? Well, thanks, Claire. Very briefly, I just want to leave people with the thoughts about the battle for Hezon City that that potentially is about to start in the next few days. Um, We need to look at what cities are uh, probably worth a deeper dive on this but I, in the meantime i'll suggest people have a look at john spencer i think he's on, on twitter i think it's spencer guard his his title there former um u.s army major uh, now now uh, researcher and uh, academic really interesting guy and specializes in urban combat and, and um he's he's the go-to chap for for all this kind of stuff but for, but very briefly very briefly as a heads up we need to we need to look at what a city is that cities are centers of population infrastructure i.e roads rail port airheads etc etc they're also population centers economic centers cultural centers so they are they are very different things to very different audiences and our recent as in our the sort of west nato if you like our recent experience of cities has been mainly the fighting we did in the middle east but that was a very very different battle than what Kazan Hezon looks like it's going to be. That was fighting a counterinsurgency where the insurgents were largely hiding amongst the population. They had much more um, uh, support from those, from that population. Uh, fighting an enemy army camped inside a city is a, is a very different, um, a very different prospect. Um, so, so if you think about a city, they uh, just the physical structures of it will break up assaulting formations. So you don't the attackers lose their lose lose any kind of strength in numbers, which is why they have to have so many more. We say assaulting a, a position very basically in, in rural areas is about a three to one. The attacker needs three times as many people as there are defenders in a city. That's at least double, if not many, many more times. Partly because the, the the assaulting formations just get broken up. If you if you assault a house, that's a that's a platoon a, um, a platoon uh, objective, a platoon of about thirty soldiers. So that's just for one house. So a row of houses, you easily you swallow up a company and a battalion and so on and so forth. So cities just just swallow up people um, because of the way it 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 breaks up assaulting formations, and that's partly because it protects the defenders. That there are so many ambush sites. It protects the movement of defenders. They can go. They can go through the buildings. They'll blow mouse holes through the walls, so they can uh, they can move from one house to another without having to come out onto the street or over the roof, for, uh, and thereby expose themselves to fire. They can use um, they can use sewers and, and drains and underground tunnels and all the rest of it. So if you think about the infrastructure with with underground trains and, and what have you, it's just it's just a warren for for defenders. The built-up nature of a city it will degrade any um, surveillance assets. It will degrade communications. So the radio radio signals do not work brilliantly well when they're trying to you know wiggle around concrete concrete blocks. And the more violence that you introduce into a city, that then creates even more obstacles, which uh, actually probably benefits the defender because there there are more places to to fight from and hide behind, and there are uh, even more restricted routes. So any assaulting formation. Um, what the, what the defence will try and do is canalise the, the assaulting uh, tanks, for example, so they only come down a certain number of avenues, um, so they're easier to hit. As those avenues are 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 turned to rubble, then there are even fewer routes of approach. So the more violence that's inflicted on the city, the more it it, uh, it generally benefits the defender. And the final thought here is is um, 
I spoke to General Stephen Townsend, who was a US, US general. He was, uh, I spoke to him when he was in charge of TRADOC, which is the training and doctrine command of the US, but he had just come from commanding uh, coalition forces in, in Iraq. And he said that for the Battle of uh, Mosul in northern Iraq in 2017, um, the experience there was that, that a, a, a building of about four, five, six, seven, eight stories, um, if it was hit by a, a precision Bomb, the, it would just it would just pancake. The, the building would collapse, um, and the certainly the basement and probably the well certainly the basement and ground floor and probably the first floor as well were kind of intact. So they just made these amazing pillboxes, these great defended positions. Um, of course, if you're in higher floors or if the building is particularly high, then the, the whole thing will go. But but buildings that are in in sort of medium sized cities or large towns that are around you know, five six seven stories high, they will just pancake when they collapse, and anyone in at ground level is perfectly safe. And he said in Mosul, ISIS were 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 just camped out in these places, and it became extremely difficult to winkle them out. And what the um, the Iraqi army was having to do was basically put a combat engineer tractor up front, covered in in. Um, uh, in sort of uh, bulletproof glass and, and other other armor to put up with small arms and RPGs and all the rest of it, and have a squad behind that that um, that tractor that would basically go forward into these areas. And when ISIS were opening up from these uh, from the, the collapsed buildings, they would then have to pop out and and take them on. And it was it was a very very low level attack, i.e. the comms weren't working. So this is junior NCOs and junior officers having to fight their way through this kind of environment. So an army that, that thinks it's got uh, loads of generals and really senior people and an amazing kit, they rapidly in an urban environment, rapidly comes down to rifles and, as it was in Mosul, flamethrowers. I mean, gritty, horrible, brutal stuff to winkle out those last few last few defenders. So when we look at the, the upcoming battle for Hezon, We've got to ask ourselves, well, what, what is that city? How is it going to fight? Um, is it a question of fighting for the city or fighting in the city? Because you don't have to go through every single street. It will be extremely costly. So the way that Ukraine approached this, um, this city, with all the symbolism there, it was the first city taken. It was the, it's the, um, you know, the capital of um, Hezon Oblast. It leads the route around the corner to Mykolaiv and Odessa. Um, it's extremely important to both sides symbolically. Um, as well as tactically. So they're going to fight for this. Whether or not that involves Ukrainian troops going into the city, for all the reasons I've just discussed, um, we'll have to wait and see. But we do need a, a, a closer examination on this. And in fact, I should try and get hold of John Spencer and get him on because he is, he's the guru on this. It's, it's fascinating and horrific at the same time. But do have a look at him on, um, on Twitter. He's written a great book. But urban combat is, is orders of magnitude more complex and and horrific I would suggest than, than rural but one for another day Thank you Dom, over to you Joe what would you like to leave our listeners with? I I, I want to touch on, I, I vaguely touched on it beforehand about kind of the creative side of, of Kiev as a city and I will try and post some of these on Twitter uh, shortly but there's been loads of, of these brilliant kind of murals popping up around the city drawn by local artists uh, to celebrate basically Ukraine, and there, so there was one of uh, one I stumbled across in a trendy neighbourhood called Poddle, and that was of the apparent ghost of Kiev, who was this mythical fighter pilot who gunned out gunned down tens of Russian jets at the start of the war. Uh, there were other other ones, uh, say like "Be brave, be like Ukraine." Uh, and just there's loads of fantastic pieces of artwork around Kiev, and I'd, I'd, I'd kind of endeavour our listeners and our readers uh, to kind of search out on the internet for, for various pieces of art that have sprung up, and I'll, I'll do my best to share as many as I can in in the next week or so, um, because I just find it I just find it fascinating how Kiev's creative side has kind of really shone and and, and shown out despite all that's going on it's not let the city hasn't let itself and the, the kind of the cultural scene hasn't let itself be defeated by russian aggression um just like its soldiers on the front line haven't let themselves be overwhelmed and defeated by russian soldiers and that's where i'll, I'll stop here thank you joe and finally to you francis for your final thoughts thanks claire 
I was struck listening to Rishi Sunak's first speech as the British Prime Minister yesterday at how frank he was about the challenges that Britain faces, whether they be economic or, or social. And of course, those are challenges that, that are echoed across the Western world, many of them predating the war in Ukraine. And it just underlined to me yet another tragedy caused by Putin's invasion, just how many hundreds of thousands of hours across dozens of countries, which could be being spent on tackling these global challenges, but instead have to be spent battling against a tyrant's crude, brutal ambition. Now, of course, it's absolutely vital that that battle is fought for all of the reasons that we've been talking about for for many, many months now. But I just wanted to, I suppose, underline the the extraordinary and tragic cost of that in in money, in manpower, and of course, in human life. Um, All of those which have been most keenly experienced by the Ukrainians themselves, but of course, other countries are also involved in this. And as I say, there's an uncomfortable truth, which is that history shows that that only really in times of peace do, do governments have the capacity to tackle bigger challenges, improving the quality of life and, and, and tackling graver injustices. And unfortunately, the longer that this war lasts, the longer the world and, and not just Ukraine suffers. But it's a battle that has to be fought. Um, but it comes at a tremendous cost, as I say. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear an episode as soon as it is available, please do search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Alternatively, you can check the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced today by Giles Gear and on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.